Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott and I spent the first nine episodes of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project. This podcast, the website, and the membership program that lies behind it. Since then, we've been exploring the intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, from which we can craft a vision of a future that is generative for all of us, for the human and the more-than-human worlds. My guest this week is a physicist, an academic, an advisor to governments, and author of a book called The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, which is easily one of the best books on the current climate and ecological crisis that I have read. Paul Behrens writes beautiful flowing prose. It's easy to read, it makes sense, and it's full of the kind of facts that go in and stay in. Some of them are disturbing, but because he's looked at the balance between the pessimistic reality of where we are and the optimistic potential of how fast we're changing. How good are the green shoots of progress? It left me with a genuine sense of hope. And most of all, Paul has created pathways, showing how we get from where we are to where we need to be. And there is nothing more valuable as we head so fast towards the tipping points. So people of the podcast, please welcome Paul Behrens. So Paul Behrens, welcome to Accidental Gods podcast. You're out in Ireland in beautiful Connemara and I can see little bits of it through the window behind you, including a palm tree. Um, so you are author of an amazing book called The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, which is almost as Dickensian as that title makes us believe. And full disclosure, we share an agent, which is how I got to hear of it. Though I think, genuinely, having read it several times now, it's the kind of book anyone listening to this podcast will want to have read this book. Partly because clearly you know your stuff, hugely, but also because you have balanced it into, okay, here's the bad news. And people listening, it is very bad. But also, here's the good news. Every section has the pessimistic view and the optimistic view, which for me puts its streets ahead of some of the other here are the facts about climate books, which tend either to say basically the only possible option is to shoot yourself now, or it's okay, guys, we're going to fix it. And you do both. <laughs> <laughs> or neither, depending on which way we choose to look at it. So tell us a little bit about Paul and how you came to write this book before we look at, kind of go into the guts of what it says. Well, thank you for the kind words about the book, Amanda. So you basically described it pretty well. I've often found myself, depending on the day, you know, get the side I get out of bed, uh, hopeful or pessimistic about the future. And I think there's an underserved community of people who are probably a little bit like me uh, in the sense that, you know, there is nuance in the world. There, there, there are lots of very, very hopeful signs 
that we we see in the media uh, and around us. And there are lots of, you know, really, really quite terrifying uh, outcomes of current climate change and biodiversity loss. And so keeping these things in mind at the same time is just where the difficulty is. And then being a scientist, there are things that are coming down the road that is very difficult for the public to appreciate now. I mean, we're we're to some extent uh, reaping what we've sown uh, over the last few decades uh, right now with the climate impacts. And so, you know, the longer the time goes on with the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the biodiversity loss and land uh, change, the, the, the more impacts that we can expect from that and the more people will realise those impacts. So you've really sort of highlighted exactly why I went about writing the book in the way that I did and why the books out there, while wonderful, many, many wonderful books, but you have to read uh, quite a lot of them from a bit different perspectives to get a sort of a nuanced uh, picture there. And I thought, well, what happens if you actually commit to this? Because the other, the other thing that that does is it allows you to see the step change that's needed. What exactly is needed to go from that pessimism to that hope? You know, what is the difference? Because if you read one book on pessimism or one book on hope, you may not be quite so sure as to what's actually needed to go to make that jump. Um, yes. And so that's really the the sort of the, that was a fundamental driver, and and for me to figure this out as well myself in the process of uh, of exploring that uh, as a scientist and and as a member of the public and as 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 a somebody as a human in society. Yeah, who wants there to be a future? Tell us a little bit about you're a scientist. You're an academic scientist. Give us a, a kind of brief history of Paul that brought you to this point. I'm a physicist by training, but very quickly was interested in public policy, how decisions were made, uh, governance, these sorts of things. So uh, I did my PhD in uh, atmospheric physics, but then afterwards uh, quickly left to give advice uh, to government on scientific issues um, and so gave uh, advice on uh, there was some regulatory stuff on uh, genetically modified uh, uh, organisms. There was also some some work on languages and what lang- multilingualism brings to countries. So I had this sort of very sort of diverse process of sort of exploring how policy decisions are made, uh, given what information, what scientific information or what other evidence there was. And then I decided that I wanted to go back into academia and went to the Netherlands. And now I work in industri- what's called industrial ecology, which is a fairly new research sort of area, which focuses mostly, you'll probably know it mostly by the things it focuses on, which is footprinting, circular economy, figuring out the impacts of uh, sustainable development goals, these sorts of things. That's the sorts of things that industrial ecology looks at. Uh, some of your listeners might know about life cycle assessment. So when you when you look at um, the impacts of a particular product or things like this, so some of your listeners might be sort of thinking, well, is this product better than this product? And often the data that comes from that is life cycle assessment. So I work in these sorts of areas with the intersection of society uh, and natural impacts. Um, And I also have a keen interest in, from the atmospheric sciences side, in climate change, of course. So although biodiversity does appear in the book too, there is a heavy emphasis on climate change as part of my background and as also some of my research interests too. So you've been advising the British government? Uh, It was actually the New Zealand. So when I was in New Zealand, um, so I was working on uh, wind turbines and renewable energies in New Zealand uh, for my PhD uh, right. about a decade ago. Gosh, now. you have had a very exciting life. And now you're in Ireland, which is beautiful. Although New Zealand, I have to say, is beginning to feel like one of those places that might end up politically being the only safe place left on the planet. However, since the American elections, that feels less less the case. So, so we get to the book and 
wanting nuance and balance and wanting to give people the track from how we get to where things are, which having read the book is is a lot scarier than I'd thought. I, that's one of the very interesting things that I found was you're very good at highlighting the data that really sinks in. So a couple of the things that really struck me, every litre of fuel that I use in the car melts one tonne of Arctic ice. That, I stopped driving for about three weeks. I mean, we are in the middle of lockdown and I didn't have anywhere really to go. But but my goodness, that just that single data point blew all my fuses. And I, okay, I, I, how do I not drive when I live in the middle of nowhere and the nearest town is eight miles away? And then I talked to a friend in Australia and her hairdresser is a three-hour drive away. And I thought, okay, so me deciding to park the car forever <laughs> in Shropshire isn't necessarily going to to change the world, but it will make a difference to how I see the world. And I think anyone who's read the book and continues to fly has not been paying attention, for instance. So, so let's look at the book for a bit, because you divide it into energy, food, climate, economics, which is one of my favourite topics, very exciting, and look at where we are in each of those, which is scary, but also human ingenuity is an extraordinary thing. And so in each of these, you bring forward the ways that we are making progress. And so I'd like to look a little bit at each topic. So we look at energy to begin with. Mm -hmm, sure. In terms of what you wrote, but also it, it's a year since you wrote the book, or at least a year since you finished it, the publishing cycles being what they are. It was published um, six weeks ago, I think, at the time of writing, thereabouts. So life has changed. And I wonder, is there anything particular in the field of energy use or particularly the politics around energy use? Because what struck me reading the book was our use of energy is catastrophic. Again, another factoid that you brought forward was each of us in the Western world daily uses as much energy as we would create if we cycled the Tour de France five times, which is a lot of energy. Although I can't imagine doing that even once, but <laughs> we're, we're using vast amounts of energy and most of it is still fossil fuels. And most of it, Britain particularly, is massively subsidized by our governments. And the, the key, it seemed to me, in each field, I have to say, but particularly in energy, was political will. And so I wonder, in the last year, has anything, if you were to update the book now, is there anything new that you would put in there or anything that you'd particularly want to highlight? Yeah, I, well, just, just a few things there, I think, on, on what you're mentioning is that we are, to some extent, stuck in the systems that we have. So you're not driving, you know, means that you can't get to shops. I mean, so the sort of factoid about uh, Arctic ice is not to sort of uh, guilt anybody into not driving anywhere. I mean, we are stuck in systems and we have uh, lives to lead. And that totally makes sense that it's, it's difficult to transition. I mean, this is one of the reasons why transitions are very difficult. Uh, for flying, uh, yeah, I don't fly myself anymore. Obviously, I used to work in New Zealand and there was a bit of, fly well, quite a bit of flying there. But it, I think for people that, you know, it gets to the stage where you just think, well, this is, this is just you know, this is not tenable anymore, mm. uh, and then you, you basically uh, stop flying. But that's that's for everybody to make uh, everybody to make those those decisions uh, for each person. Um, in terms of the changes in the 
COVID situation and the lockdown in terms of energy, I think the the, the, the biggest impact is in the oil uh, markets, is in the, the global uh, oil uh, distribution system and extraction system. And it may be that these years will be peak oil. Uh, so we will have peaked uh, in our oil use. Um, we really already have in coal. Uh, we are looking to peak very soon in oil. Even even without COVID, we would have been looking to peak very soon, and then eventually peaking in in gas too. Um, and the disarray that the oil markets are in has been one of the biggest impacts. I mean, uh, a lot of the uh, oil companies have now dropped from the highest rankings in different stock markets. And there is a lot of excitement in renewables. So just watching the way in which businesses and markets are moving, there's obviously a lot of uh, bullish attitudes towards renewable energies and the technologies that facilitate them. Mm. I think there is always a underappreciation and a lack of focus on energy efficiency and reducing sort of energy use while still having the same what we call in science energy services. So as Amory Lovins, who was an energy expert, once said, we don't really care about gas or a litre of oil. That does nothing for us. What we're really interested in is warm showers and cold beers. You know, and if we can get warm showers and cold beers in any other way, then it, that's that's totally fine. And that's one of the disappointing things I, I always get disappointed with is that one, the, the really low-hanging fruit, which is just so obvious and not high technology, is things like insulation. We know how to do insulation. We, we Typically, we can upgrade many, many houses across the UK, and yet it never happens because of policy uh, issues, because of split incentives between landlords and tenants, because if a tenant is paying the electricity bill, then the landlord has, you know, or the heating bill, the landlord has no interests. And so a lot of this stuff is just getting this stuff done. And I haven't seen that still. There's been another plan or proposal after the last failed attempt to improve insulation in the UK. But I haven't seen that commitment to uh, that side of things, the demand side of things. So there are some very promising signs in the supply side in terms of the oil, uh, in, in, in terms of electrical vehicles, uh, in terms of having better street planning, you know, basically blocking off streets for traffic and things like this during COVID, uh, appreciation of urban space and what urban space means, because, you know, if you want to take keep two meters distance from people, you're going to need that urban space and you're going to need those roads to be open for people and for children to play and these sorts of things. So hopefully there's a realization not all of this energy use is needed and there are other alternatives which are much healthier for us. Not, you know, not even mentioning the fact that, you know, a thousand Europeans die prematurely from air pollution each day. So, this is what we need to be looking at. And I think this has been an eye-opener for lots of people. Yes. And I'm wondering, has it been an eye-opener for the people in power? Because again, one of the things that really struck me was that the WHO knows that air pollution, which is a side effect of burning fossil fuels to get us from A to B, if we were to cease to burn the fossil fuels but still be able to get to A to B, the savings, the overall financial economic savings in our health systems would far outweigh the cost of having made the transition to other forms of transport. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Then you know, even for people who are embedded in the current economic model, and you know, I think it would be useful to talk a bit about how do we change the system, because exactly as you said, we're stuck in systems and systemic change has to happen. But even for people who want to maintain the current system, that's a no-brainer. So there must be, and you do write in the book about the, the lobbying impact of the fossil fuel industry. And 
I'm wondering, since COVID, since air got cleaner, we used less carbon. I was reading yesterday on Bloomberg a whole article about stranded assets in oil, that people are getting out of oil faster because they can see that you know shares in oil are going to plummet at some point very soon and you don't want to still have them at the point when they plummet and that's what mm-hmm. makes them plummet, is mm-hmm. enough people making that decision. And it doesn't need to be huge numbers of people, it just needs to be enough to start kicking the, the price down. Mm-hmm. And I was remember about April of lockdown where oil futures had become negative. They were paying people to buy up their oil. So has that, in policy terms and in economic terms, changed significantly or are we kind of rebounding back to where we were, do you think? I don't know what will happen after the vaccines come out and after people feel a little bit uh, safer using more energy and and flying and things like this. Uh, For the time being, yes, it has made a huge impact on sort of the the viability uh, of the oil market. I mean, if you look at uh, pandemics through history, the the broad consensus view seems to be that it accelerates trends that were already happening. And these trends were already happening. Um, It was just that most people didn't realise, A, how cheap the transition was going to be, um, because it's just been getting cheaper and cheaper all the time. It's been astonishingly cheap and how expensive the current system is and we'll go we'll later get down the line and we'll probably think to ourselves well why didn't we do this earlier when you're walking down a street and you don't have to smell those diesel fumes anymore uh when your children who are you know at exhaust height of the cars uh, aren't choking down those those particulates anymore right. i think for finally this is starting to hit hit home I, I hope i think especially if you look at the number of people who are concerned about the future who do have some sort of eco anxiety even in the you know in the uk uh, even among the broad uh, public so i think this is tra- starting to make a difference i think that the, as the power of uh, those oil interests wanes uh, we will see a faster and faster acceler- you know acceleration one of the things that we always think about as humans is sort of linear change we think about change as just being step by step by step mm-hmm. but actually it's just these critical points that accelerate really quickly away like the, what you like what you were just mentioning as people start realizing there's just no future in these stranded assets anymore they're just going to write them down this is actually one thing that the central banks of different countries are really worried about because they know where the science is going they know how fast this has to be to avoid some of the really catastrophic impacts. And now they're thinking, well, uh, you know, if if our banks are supporting carbon intensive assets, uh, if we've got these people building uh, more carbon intensive infrastructure, you know, this is a huge loss to our economy. And this is where hopefully there'll be more regulations coming out about how this is accounted for which will really push a lot of uh, sustainable investment. So I think we're starting to see a sort of tipping point in society even last year. But I think COVID, to some extent, has accelerated parts of that and perhaps gotten in the way of other parts, because I think COVID has really gotten in the way of the momentum of sort of activism and marching and and, and, and some, some of those climate movements. Yes, although XR is becoming much more creative and doing doing different things to try and maintain the momentum. Yeah, it'll be very interesting, I imagine, to see if a post-Cummings UK government cuts back on its fossil fuel investments. Because once I began to see the numbers of how much of our tax money our government is pouring into the fossil fuel industry. I know we live in a kleptocracy, but it's so blatant. The funneling of public money into private hands for presumably personal gain of either the people doing it or the or the system doing it is is terrifying. Oh no, one other factoid that I think would be very useful 
you said the kids at exhaust height, but also in the book you said that schools that are downwind of major roads have significantly lower educational reach, or or the kids get lower scores in their exams than the the kids upwind. Was that right? Yeah, yeah, that was one study in the uh, US, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, once parents know that. And once they've experienced what the air smells like when you're not breathing diesel fumes all day, every day, then one assumes we can begin to get movement behind that as well. It seems we just need, we just need these data points to be out there. I, I think the uh, there was a, a public health official who spoke about um, smoking and why it was so hard, so hard to ban smoking. And what they said was, uh, somebody said basically, what, what you know, if it causes all this damage, you know, why haven't we stopped it yet? And the public health official turned around and said, show me the bodies. right. You know, if you're not seeing if you're not seeing the damage that that's doing, because the damage is internal and over a long time, it's very difficult for humans to get that feeling of wolf at the door type thing of like, oh, my God, you know, if a thousand people were dropping dead in the street every day um, due to, you know, the the direct impacts of, of air pollution. Yeah, we'd be definitely doing something about it. But unfortunately, you know, it actually happens down the road. Yes. And. And I am watching the States and 800 people a day were dying from COVID Mm. in the middle of last spring. And we still had people claiming that it wasn't happening. So, you know, the the capacity of certain people to believe what they want to believe is is quite scary. So let's move on to food, because that also, I think, is it's one of your four key areas. And it's something where everybody has skin in the game. And, And it seems to me that particularly the concept of regenerative agriculture as being a way of turning food production into negative carbon rather than the the huge carbon production that it is at the moment. So I'm wondering, what were your key takeaways in terms of agriculture? Because I'm guessing it wasn't your area to begin with. Did you find anything that really surprised you when you came to look at food production and its impact on the climate? Um, yeah, so, well, I, I do, I do work in food as well. So there's, it, it wasn't so much of a story. We have, we do do some public, we do, <laughs> do we have uh, published well. in food. Well, it's it, industrial ecology is one of these stu- uh, areas where you can do quite a bit because, you know, you're combining uh, economics with the, with the rest of it, but that should be also be a caveat because, um, you know, I'm not much of a gardener. The studies that look at how we can go forwards with the food system and, uh, continue the way that we're doing basically suggest that there are three main things that we have to do. Uh, One is dietary change, the other is reduction in food waste, and the other is production technologies. And if you have, and those technologies can be agroecology too, it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, automated sort of robot type stuff. Uh, But the two biggest ones by far are diets and reducing waste. So diets and reducing waste are by far the biggest impacts. And we've got to remember that it's not just the uh, carbon emissions from the food system, it's biodiversity loss, and probably even more importantly, it's land. It just uses a huge amount of land. So, you know, humans use about 80% of ice-free land globally. About half of that is for the... Just to feed yourself. It's just amazing. And if you, if you think about half of that is for the food system, and most of that, so about 40% of all ice-free land in total, is for animal agriculture that is where the key part is and so over and over and over again you just have to keep repeating over and over and over that animal agriculture is the biggest thing and if you want to look at one area of and I'm sure most of your listeners already know this so many times they've heard it but 
it, it really is uh, red meat. Uh, and if you want to look at one area, uh, get you know removing as many ruminants from the system as possible is the biggest impact. And I like to think of things, maybe this is a bit too much like a physicist of me, but I like to think of things as where where's the biggest benefits. And when you get down to the smaller, sort of more marginal benefits, there's not only is are they smaller benefits, but you know, sometimes there are changes in the science or changes in production systems or the technology that, you know, then inform us of better ways to do things. But we know for sure <laughs> that reducing waste and getting rid of ruminants is the two biggest things that we can do that makes them the vast majority of the difference uh, going towards 2050. And the other big thing about this is we're going to need that land for carbon sequestration, for drawing down carbon. Mm. Uh, and so it's a huge release of land so it really changes the way our communities look or the way our, our rural areas look in different countries uh in terms of rewilding in terms of afforestation reforestation however it's done there's lots of different ways to do it and i think that has to be more on a local basis you know on a on a region by region basis uh, and driven by local communities it can't be the situation where you know somebody from outside is saying well you know you need to change your local uh, region like this i think it has to be sort of far more community focused than that and i think that would be beneficial for lots of other sort of knock-on impacts and you know democratic values and all these things as well so but in the food system those are the two major areas and production systems do have a, a large role to play and i am i am quite hopeful about uh, technologies being able to uh, help with improving the environmental sustainability of production systems. So, for example, bringing back uh, multi-cropping uh, instead of this monocultures, uh, you know, potentially through sort of automated uh, automated farming and things like this. But the problem is there is always this sort of concentration of power again. Uh, you know, you can imagine that uh, agricultural businesses will get stronger and stronger, um, sort of a tighter and tighter hold on those technologies. And then, you know, it will, it will be in a sort of similar situation as today where, Farmers are driven to monocultures because there are, you know, basically four seed companies own sort of seventy five percent of the global market. Uh, these huge, huge companies have massive, massive impacts on um, both the prices that uh, farmers are paid and the and the prices that you know uh, farmers can sell their goods at. Um, so. I think that's the danger of the production thing. But on the on the dietary and the waste side, I mean, a lot of that is is essentially sort of up to us and the system will respond to our, our 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 shifts and we are starting to see that. And it's one of the few areas where personal change can begin to make a serious difference because it's only by everybody deciding to eat less meat that will shift, whereas each of us, it's harder to decide not to drive. For instance, yeah, yeah, to, we need the systemic change. In making transport. Sorry, I was just going to say, the, I mean, the thing is there is is that there's loads of evidence that, you know, because people find it hard to imagine some of their friends or family, you know, going vegetarian, for example. I mean, first of all, you know, they can cut down on their meat, of course, and you've seen that. But first of all, I would say that, that you know, that it's often surprising how willing people are to make that change. Because I think there's this bubbling anxiety under the surface for a lot of people, even if they're not paying attention to, like your listeners might be, to, to some of the ecological stuff down the road, um, there's this mm -hmm. bubbling tension. So I, I think that they sort of feel this, they do feel it. Uh, the second thing is, that as you get more uh, vegetarian and sort of vegan options in restaurants and supermarkets, 
meat eaters do engage. So there's studies in the US, for example, where meat eaters who self-professed meat eaters will eat more vegetarian food if those options are there because it's exciting to try new things out. Also, they kind of know they should be, but often they're not really turned on by the one vegetarian option on the on the, the restaurant menu. Yeah. Um, and so your individual efforts really do make a difference there. And I try to explain that to students all the time because they feel so powerless. Um, and they say, oh, well, I'm vegetarian. I'm vegan. What difference does that really make? And so I you know, explain this to them that it really does make a huge difference. You just can't see it. Yes. And even within the current system, it does. I have bought to try, because I have dogs and cats, a dog food that is primarily insect-based. Um, which I thought was cool. uh, the proteins are all from insects, so I thought that was a that was an interesting move. My worry always, if the entire eight billion of us become vegan, is how do we supply that in ways that exactly as you say aren't the four big companies turning the entire globe into monocultures, which will which is as it's probably not as bad as you know Brazil taking down the Amazon in order to feed beef to send to American hamburger markets, but a hundred acres of lentils is also not a good thing. We need so so what your book is saying is we need to we need to change that. But I'm wondering, as individuals seeking agency, how do we move? towards where we need to go that isn't supporting the industrialization of agriculture simply on a vegan level? Well, that's a great question. Um, first of all, I would say that we can provide enough food. We already provide enough food for everybody in the world. It's just a distribution problem, uh, and that's often political and, and to do with power. But uh, we even have producing enough food for 10 billion people right now. And if we were to reach sort of uh, some of the lower projections by uh, 2050, we could still save land and produce enough food, even with that increased population and the increased consumption if, we, if we're going vegan and vegetarian. The issues in middle and low income countries is very, very different to the issues in high income countries. So I do want to make clear to sort of the listeners that there is, there is this difference. And in low and high, middle income countries, often that there are not appropriate proteins that are available other than animal proteins. And so you can't make this blanket statement that everybody's going to follow this same diet because people are going to need to transition to a system where those proteins are available and those nutrients are available. Um, in high income nations, it's very, very clear that there's ample opportunities in terms of vegan and, and, and vegetarian options, which do have the nutrients needed. And to your point about, you know, how do you get away from maybe uh, sort of, you know, this extra concentration in, in vegan and vegetarian options. Um, part of that is that you are seeing this great diversity right now building up, I think, in, 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 in a lot of the sort of uh, businesses uh, that are growing at the moment in the vegetarian and vegan space. You know, a lot, often a lot of the inputs of the plants that are going into to, to, to those processed foods, you know, the, 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 the sort of beyond burgers and things are coming from the big companies. Um, and, you know, Long term, we, that stranglehold or that that sort of concentration will need to be broken in some way. I'm not at the moment sure what that's going to look like, but it'll probably look like some combination of uh, open access seed vaults. You know, people being able to because at the moment a lot of the uh, seeds are uh, proprietary, uh, or at least companies don't want to collaborate yeah. with either academia or with farmers on that. So, but you've got a lot of efforts like uh, Open Bios and uh, the Open uh, Seed yeah. uh, Foundation. Yeah. So, I think it's some combination of those. 
flows um, and this increasing interest in diversity to protect against climate harms. Because right now, focusing on four main types of cereal crops is, you know, going to be quite worrying given climate damages. And we're going to need to diversify away from that Um in some cases, that may 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 be uh, modifications uh, to the plants, uh, so GMOs. In in other cases, it will hopefully be uh, increasing the diversity of the types of uh, cereals, the types of vegetables, the types of things that are available to us, and that will also uh, offer an opportunity for us. You know, that'll also be a world of exploration rather than uh, a narrowing down to just you know a few products like lentils or uh, or, or soy, for example. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's hard to see. As with all monopoly issues, it's hard to see the system reforming itself. Uh, but as time goes on, and as the Overton window of what's acceptable shifts, suddenly we'll look back on it. I think, hopefully, in the future, and go, "Wow, how did that shift happen? And how did we move away? That was amazing. How we moved away from uh, those uh, main sort of four suppliers or whatever of uh, of seeds, for example." And because not everybody listening knows what an Overton window is, can you just give us a very brief look at an Overton window? And then I want to move to politics because I'm aware of the time and I and. Climate and economics are your next two sections, and it seems to me that both of those are highly political. So let's use the Overton window as a step into politics. Oh, well, so the Overton window is what's broadly acceptable to the public at any one time. So there's sort of a narrow set of acceptable responses to political issues that runs slightly to the left to slightly to the right. Uh, and this Overton window itself can shift over time. So the uh, window of acceptable policies in the US, uh, despite being, uh, you know, a first-past-the-post system like to the like the UK is co- totally different to the UK. You know, the things that they discuss, the things that seem mm. acceptable, the things that they could countenance changing in society are so different to the what the UK uh, looks like. And other Westminster systems is the same for New Zealand compared to the UK, which has a uh, Westminster system. So this Overton window describes this sort of shifting acceptance over time. And you know, it's not a clear-cut thing because if you look at the climate assembly, so this this was a this was an attempt in the UK to bring together ideas for policy change for uh, climate change, and the idea here was to get a representative sample of people across the country to suggest what they would like to see in terms of policy changes to meet climate goals. And whilst it, it still didn't go quite far enough from a scientific perspective of what we need to do, it went far beyond where the politicians were at. You know, they were talking about banning SUVs, uh, cutting down meat, uh, frequent flyer taxes, you know, stuff that politicians aren't even mentioning. So the Overton window doesn't necessarily have to be the what's being discussed in politics at any one time. It can be broader than that. It can be what basically is acceptable to the the, 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 the nation itself, or at least the sort of the, the general feeling within the public. Yes. And, and I think one of the key things is that radical action at either edge, beyond the current reach of the Overton window has a tendency to drag it one mm-hmm. way or the other. So the obvious example in Britain for me is Nigel Farage screaming on what used to be the very, very, very far right mm-hmm. fringe has succeeded in moving the Overton window quite a scary way to the right in terms of our what is considered centrist and acceptable responses to immigration or particularly to the EU. At at the 2010 election, the EU was apparently 26th on the list of things that people found important. And and by six years later, we are 
we we voted the way we voted, and now ten years later we are where we are. So, so a particularly vocal individual moved the window that way. But then I'm also noticing that Extinction Rebellion and actions that were considered really radical in terms of asking for people to tell the truth about the climate has moved the Overton window of our concept of climate quite radically to the point where the BBC hosts David Attenborough saying things that he did Mm. not say five Mm. years ago that were nonetheless true five years ago, but there wasn't the political space for him to Mm. say that, I think. And so I think what's very interesting from the view of political activism is noticing how activism can shift the window. Yeah. So given that, the next two of your sections were climate and economics, and the and the climate section again had a lot of a lot of factoids about where we're actually at, which did lead me. You said at the beginning that one of the questions you tend to be asked at dinner parties at the beginning of the book, you said this was was is there still time? Are we completely screwed, or basically do we have a possibility of moving? And in reading the pessimistic section of your climate chapters, I, I was struggling to imagine that we still had time. But if we have time, it's because we create the political will, I think. And your economics chapter made it clear that it's within the economic system that we need to make the biggest changes. Does that sound fair to you? Yeah, I mean, restructuring it. But I, I think those those only come about because of the other changes in the other systems uh, by both sort of individuals and, and the other sort of actors in society, you know, uh, law and, and finance and... So I think it's fair enough to say that uh, we will need this revolution in economics. And there are plenty of people pushing for that directly. Uh, uh, so some of that will come directly and some of that will come indirectly. Okay. So it's sounding, because from my perspective, and it's probably skewed because I did a master's in regenerative economics, but if we don't change the profit motive and the primacy of shareholder value as a primary thing, and if we don't change within people the sense that there is a finite amount of stuff that accrues to people either through their effort or through their ownership of of rent rental systems in its largest form, then we're not going to change the way that people try to accumulate more value to themselves. And that we need an absolutely ground level conceptual change of the system of how we interact with each other and the ways that we interact with each other tend to be economic. In your view, how do we get to the the legal and conceptual changes in time that will shift the balances of power? Because we started at the top saying, when the fossil fuel industry has less power, then the renewable industry can rise. But the people who run the fossil fuel industry, the kind of the silent, the Koch brothers and the others who who we hear of less, these are the people who own more value than several small African countries in and of themselves as individuals. It's a huge amount of power that we've given them because we say that this green thing called a dollar has value. If we could get to the point where we go, you know what, your dollars are valueless. We don't value dollars anymore. We value a blockchain that comes from creating renewable energy or something, then then we change the balance of power. But if we don't do that quickly, I'm not sure we're going to have the time. Have you any ideas of how we can do it quickly? 
or even whether that's what needs to be done. Yeah, no, I, okay. So I, I absolutely agree. We, I mean, eventually we need to, uh, eventually, I say eventually, it depends on the timescale, of course. We need to get to this uh, situation where we uh, account for these externalities, you know, the, the impacts on, on society and not just in monetary terms, you know, because if you if you account for externalities just in monetary terms, then it can still be the case where you tot up both sides and with some creative, uh, you know, ideological accounting in, uh, in economics, you can still get a cost-benefit analysis, which basically degrades long-term thinking. So we absolutely need to get to this broader conception of value and welfare um, and well-being. And there are huge movements around the world to get this going you know to have this i mean they, they not just get this going but it's actually being actively engaged with in uh, some nations i mean the, the ones that people always mention are things like you know uh, new zealand uh, which embraced this and, and and turned away from gdp but you know there's this desire basically all areas of society to move away from gdp then you also have to restructure the ways in which yeah the profit motive as you mentioned and you know in my view you know you couldn't get much more hierarchical and more dictatorial necessarily than the structure of uh, uh, corporate structures. I think they've become a lot more flat in recent years, but they've, they've, they've traditionally been very, very hierarchical. I mean, um, very, very sort of uh, dominating from the top down. I personally think that democracy uh, and uh, worker-led enterprises uh, have, a, have a much larger role to play in the future. Um, because they can bring in a broader set of values, uh, and that democracy is also very, very important. And potentially, instead of this, uh, the profit motive, what will need to replace it is, you know, the least risk for the long term. So whatever, uh, whatever calculation that needs to be done for that uh, will need to be need to be undertaken. I'm always a little bit nervous as a scientist. I'm always wanting to measure things, you know. But and you know, the, the classic statement is, you can't manage what you can't measure. But once you measure it, it becomes the thing that you have to manage. That's always the corollary. To that. Right. And if we didn't have GDP, if somebody hadn't invented that as an index, we wouldn't all be frantically trying to raise it by three percent a year. So it, that that has a you know the snake bites its own tail in that one. It can be self fulfilling, and and so one of the options is a dashboard approach, where basically you you take in all the sort of values that we might have society in society, and you you do try and quantify them because you know basically a centralized state is not really possible without quantifying this is one theory right by the way right so i'm not saying this is this is the answer um i i think it's far more decentralized the answer than this but this is one one thing you, you basically have a, a dashboard and in this dashboard you have you know you have your economic values you have your social values and you you, you know you have your environmental values and people say well how would you measure your social values well you could measure atomization in social networks you could look at rates of depression you could look at uh, mental health issues you could you could there are things that you could measure uh, and then you could be reporting this dashboard to the public each year, like, well, we've, we're not doing so well here. And we're not, you know, one, one uh, good example of this is uh, donut economics, where you, you basically have the planetary boundaries, and you have the social foundations. Um, and in general, these are left to be very localized. You know, so the local areas can focus on which areas of the foundation, they, the social foundation, they, they, they're going to measure in what way they're going to measure them. How do you get to this point is is something that we're still, I think, working out. You know, you only get to find, uh, you have to leave these old ideas behind and, and explore these new ideas as you go. 
But I think this is one way in which this could work is that, you know, you broaden this dashboard. This dashboard is reported uh, internationally. One of the reasons why GDP is so powerful is that basically it's the lingua franca of uh, macroeconomics around the world. Mm -hmm. But once you start setting down in stone a separate set of uh, quantitative assessments, then this can start to overturn the ways in which people think about it. And so, you know, you explore these new ways of being by this transformation, by exploring these different areas, these different sort of quantifications. And then if later down the road, is moving away from that quantification, then that's all for the good. But at the moment, I do think that you know this quantification is necessary in this broader conception of well-being, uh, so that at least policymakers in this very centralised system that we currently have uh, can uh, get a grip on what we really need to do to to ensure long-term survival. And then the second question is like, how fast does that actually can that actually happen? How fast does it need? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, so it needs to. Be, I mean, it needs to happen astonishingly quickly. Um, let's just put it that way. And um, but as we mentioned before. Tipping points, once reached, can be very quick in society. Uh, in nature, they tend to be much longer drawn out, protracted affairs, uh, which may not know when we've passed, but in society, they can be very, very quick. And so it really sort of depends. I think it'll be dictated a lot, actually, uh, on the timetable of the ecological changes themselves that people experience. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, people may not realise uh, how bad things have gotten uh, until, you know, it's too late to save a lot of those things. So... It probably won't be fast enough, but it'll probably be faster than most people think. In terms of how fast does it need to be? Because one of the arguments that I kept hearing when I was sitting on the streets for XR was um, 2025 is is not doable politically. And, and the answer was, yes, but that's what we actually need to do to not crash and burn. So therefore, we need to make it possible politically. That's why we're here. That's why we're trying to do this. Um and I wonder from your perspective as someone who seems quite involved at the governmental level, first of all, the IPPC says we need to, you know, it has 2050 as a kind of a deadline, but then that reduced. And a couple of years ago, we had this concept of we have 12 years to turn everything around. So that would by now be 10 years to turn everything around. That 2030 has become a bit of a deadline. If you were put in charge of world government and were able to create the systemic change that we need. And we'll talk about how you're going to do it in a moment. When would your internal deadline be for for be, for reaching carbon zero and beginning to become carbon negative, which, I, as I understand it, is what we need to do, Just if we're just looking at carbon? Yeah, I would say as fast as the productive uh, and adaptive capacities of human civilization could be, basically. I mean, so there there are things we can do on the demand and the supply side, which prevent energy poverty, food poverty, whilst making the transition as fast as possible. Because there's only so fast that things can scale whilst, you know, keeping the welfare of current people uh, in mind. Suffice to say, it it would be much, much faster in aiming for that as as early as possible. Uh, So the main thing that I would, I think I would probably sort of uh, really focus on, or one of the main things I would focus on there is also the, uh, the this concept of the just transition. I'm not a global dictator, you know, and, and none of us are. And one of the reasons why is in within our politics, we have uh, a handbrake on the system because there is a lot of people who, yes, they've been fed misinformation, but also quite rightly, uh, fear for their livelihoods. You know, people in animal agriculture, people in the energy system who, you know, are by and large, you know, these are people who are wanting to do 
uh, good. They, they're wanting, you know, I, I, I have a very positive uh, view of human behavior and human attitudes here. And, and so these people have to be looked after. So one of the main things I would do would be realign these subsidies to help people uh, basically, you know, even do the things that they want to, they would like to do. There's so many farmers, you know, you hear these interviews all the time with farmers where they would love to be doing things in an easier, in a sort of more environmentally friendly way. They don't have the time, the space or the economics, uh, the, the money to, to make it happen. And I would be, yeah, I'd be doing all the things that we know with that we need to do in terms of uh, raising taxes uh, on flights that increase the number of top flights that you take, carbon taxes potentially much larger than they're being talked about now because the research actually shows that if you have larger carbon taxes now and then maybe tail it off in the future, this is a much more effective way to, to get change. But, you know, that's just one area. I mean, we, carbon taxes are totally needed, but they're not necess- they're not enough on their own. So I would put in a broad policy suite of all the things that we need to know, uh, we need to do, uh, whilst paying really, really close attention to the areas of society that are going to lose out from this, the winners and losers, uh, and really, really speaking to the people who are going to lose out in this transition very, very directly, uh, very, very uh, competently, uh, and talking about what it is that the future is going to look like for the people who have jobs or incomes that rely on the current way that the system looks. Okay. You mentioned UBI and UBS in the book, um, as in universal basic income and universal basic services, which seems to me to speak a lot, if we could get the political will behind that, to giving people the security to work, work their way through the transition period. Do you want to say a little bit about those two, UBI and UBS? Yeah. So one of the things that is becoming increasingly clear is that not only do we have these environmental issues, we have these automation issues too. uh, And that an awful lot of work um, is, as uh, David Graeber, the, the anthropologist who sadly died died recently, uh, says uh, is bullshit, you know, is, is work that does not uh, contribute to society or community in any way. Lots of people who, about 50% of work, according to two surveys in the UK and the Netherlands, uh, is not, uh, by the people who are doing this work, is not seen as contributing to society. And how have we got ourselves into this state? Well, one of the ways out of that is to have a universal basic income uh, and universal basic services uh, in order to relieve the stress of scarcity, which right now in high income countries should never really be the case. So this idea of the UBI and UBS is extremely powerful because it frees people. Scarcity does strange things to the mind because you're always just moving from moment to moment, just trying to keep up, just trying to make ends meet. And getting rid of this scarcity does allow you to reach that sort of level of thinking long term about the future, but also achieving some sort of fulfillment and reassessing what you want from life. And so these two policies are actually absolutely crucial. And it also uh, relieves a lot of the stress uh, from, you know, this transition, from losing out of this transition, if you have this safety net there. It also addresses issues to do with equality and issues to do with, uh, you know, inequality between the sexes, but also in racial inequalities, all these sorts of things. So the UBI and the UB- and UBS are absolutely crucial at some point down the road. Are you, are you involved in policy in those areas? Because one of the things that has always struck me, particularly with UBI, is that if you don't have rent controls, using rent in its broadest sense, mm then you give everybody a £1,000 a, a month and, and their rents go up by £999 a month. And what you've done is the fastest and most efficient way of shoveling public money into private hands yet invented. And I, I still think it's a really, really good idea. I want UBI, but I want us to work out the rent controls first. And it seems to me, in the bits that I've looked into, that universal basic services, if we had um, 
food, shelter, health, transport, power, and probably now these days broadband, as a universal provision, then there's less option for the rents to suck up the basic income. That's exactly right. So this is one of the things that uh, I think uh, people worry about a little bit is this money is being moved back into the existing channels of uh, rent- rent- rentiership uh, across the economy. Yeah. Power and control. Power and control. And not only that, but uh, as an excuse then to draw back on, this, on the services in society, like the health, the medical services and these sorts of things. So yes, I think that the UBS is probably on the whole uh, a lot more exciting. I personally don't know how this plays out. I, you can see a very, very clear case for public transportation. It just seems like a, a, a clear uh, winner. How you control for usage then is very difficult because you need some way in which you can ease off in the peak periods. Uh, so, you know, uh, pricing that allows. So I don't know how that that works out. But in terms of um, shelter, shelter is the hardest one there because obviously it's geographically, you know, uh, stuck in in one place but i think that there's a lot of opportunity there for providing in the systems that we currently have shelter a roof over people's heads and as a principle that everybody deserves and needs some kind of home yeah right very very briefly before we go if we get to 2030 and everyone's read your book taken it all on board we've got the political change that we need what do we look like how does it feel to be in a 10-year future from now where we did everything that we needed to do? Well, first of all, a massive relief. So we, we've got to remember that by 2030, at least in the sort of day-to-day changes, we'll still be experiencing these impacts. Yes, the temperature may have stabilised. We may have stabilised some of the tipping points around the world, you know, natural tipping points around the world, but we'll be still experiencing something a little bit worse than today because we'll be increasing the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere up to 2030 at least. So it will be a massive relief that we finally got a handle on the problem. And then the focus will be how quickly can we draw this uh, carbon down, this excess carbon in the atmosphere down. Uh, by that stage, if we have made it to 2030 and we are at net zero, I can see a massive will to do that. You know, if we've made that change already, then it's basically going to be all hands on deck to make that happen. And then it'll be fingers crossed time that we haven't uh, transgressed uh, serious tipping points in uh, nature uh, that might unfold in terms of uh, raising uh, sea level uh, much further than we thought, uh, in terms of changing where arable land is much faster than we thought or much more deeply than we thought. So it's not all wonderful, but it's a massive relief that we actually got there and that we can take it further. Mm. Um, The second thing is that life looks very, very different in terms of the social connections that we have, the uh, water quality, the air quality that we expect, the uh, sense of community and collective action on this collective problem. Because if we do get there, then it will require this idea of collective action and this idea of being in it together. A little bit like COVID in the sense that we are protecting one another. You know, so if we do get there, we're protecting one another from these environmental harms. We're looking out for one another and we're doing that in a sort of very tight, socially linked way. You know, our energy is coming from uh, renewables and solar. So it does change the way our our countryside looks because we will need uh, quite a lot of space for that. Mm. Uh, But the entire system will be far more efficient. So we'll be needing less input energy. So we'll have a very, very efficient system that looks uh, like it's running very slickly and smoothly and using the least amount of energy necessary for people to meet the services, the energy services and the things that they need. We'll have uh, landscapes that are totally different. We won't be seeing as much animal agriculture or pastures. 
So we'll see far more uh, rewilding and afforestation. And so we'll have far more parks nearby. So we'll be able to just, you know, get to nature much, much quicker and experience higher levels of uh, biodiversity within those areas. And that will have huge impacts on our health. So all of these sorts of things will have impacts on our mental and our physical health because all of these impacts, all of our lack of access to nature right now and our air quality and water quality is you know, causing cardiac and, and pulmonary uh, illness. And so we won't have these issues anymore. And hopefully we will avoid the next COVID-19. Uh, if we do everything we need to do by 2030, we can be sure that another COVID-19 uh, is uh, un more and more unlikely. We may still get viruses due to, due to biodiversity loss and these uh, interactions between nature and, and society, but the chances of getting them will be much, much lower. And so we won't be struggling with that next one on the horizon. There's, of course, lots more that we could say. But <laughs> lots more and much less stress. If we've got the UBI and the UBS, we'll be much less stressed. And if we're less stressed, our imaginations have got more scope because we can let our imaginations go free. And so I think also we're much more creative and and that thing that you said first, that sense of relief, and we're not having constantly to run like hamsters mm. in wheels doing the bullshit jobs to achieve nothing that we know are making the world worse, would be gone. It's that level of uh, fulfillment, so that self self actualization. You know, I mean, it, the way I put it in the book is it is a little bit like Maslow's uh, pyramids of needs. You know, I mean, it, if you yep, if you're looking at yes. this hierarchy of needs, first grub, then ethics. So you need food first, and then, and then you've got shelter, and then you've got all the rest of it. And now we're at a stage where we can finally reach for that last part of self actualization. If we can drop this idea of bullshit jobs, drop this idea of uh, eco angst because we're actually we're actually uh, addressing the issues that we have drop the uh, competitive consumerism uh, which typically makes us very unhappy mm. and drop the comparisons between each other and measuring them as uh, outcomes of income you know i'm richer than somebody mm. keeping up with the joneses if we can drop all of these things and focus on the self-actualization and the fulfillments then that's the hopeful picture that we can get to brilliant that's a fantastic place to stop paul Thank you very much. And yet again, I would remind everybody that your book is out there and it'll make a very good Christmas present for people. Thanks so much, Manta. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Paul for his nuance and balance, for his wide, wide range of expertise and the pathway he has created showing how we might get from where we are to where we need to be. I will put a link to his book in the show notes. Honestly, it's a totally inspiring read. It is quite scary, but I think if we're going to get the motivation to get from where we are to where we need to be, being a little bit afraid isn't necessarily bad if that fear is based on actual accurate facts. And Paul is, above all else, totally on top of his facts and a really amazing, fantastic human person. We will be back next week with another conversation. But in the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at Head and Foot of the podcast and as ever for the stellar sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to visit us there, we're at accidentalgods.life. And you will find the show notes, including the link to Paul's book there, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the resources section, and access to the Accidental Gods membership program, which is a structured training designed to give you, or anybody else, 
the ways that we can connect fully in a heartfelt way, in an authentic way, with the more-than-human world. Because it's not just the facts that are going to help us get through. We need also to be able to become more than we are now, to be able to become the absolute best of ourselves, together and alone. And for me, the best way to do that is to connect with the more-than-human world and ask for the help that we need to know what it is that we need to be so that we can truly believe that we are the best people in the right place at the right time, each of us doing what only we can do. So that's what Accidental Gods is about. And if you're interested, head off to the website and explore. And in the meantime, if you know of anybody else who would really like to get from where we are to where we need to be, who would really appreciate the immersion in ideas that we offer, then please do send them the link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.